Welcome to Make Me Your Voice with Pastor David Bartowell. These messages are intended to deepen your faith and trust in a living God who speaks to us with hope and reason. Today's message comes to us from the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. One of the greatest speeches ever given consisted of only 272 words. The Gettysburg Address was proclaimed on November 19th, 1863, which was regarding the Civil War over slavery. To quote from Abraham Lincoln, he says, We here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. That speech was a type of a new founding or a redeclaration of what was already written in the Constitution. And many people believe that the passages in Deuteronomy where Moses speaks to Israel, preparing them to enter the Promised Land, especially in these passages we're going to deal with today, were kind of the same thing. It was a new founding, a new proclamation of Israel's constitution. Basically, they're saying, hopefully this time we'll get it right. Deuteronomy, remember the meaning of that second law? It's not the giving of another law. It's the restating of the law. And what Moses is doing, he's preparing the new generation, because remember, a whole generation had to pass away due to unbelief. And the new generation led by Joshua would inherit and possess the land. So he's preparing this new generation for that land. Israel's governing constitution, the law of God, consisted of three branches of government, but really four because you have the office of prophet. And a lot of nations throughout the history of the world have emulated this. One of those nations is ours. We have three branches of government. And we had got this information from the Bible. And so we're going to talk about how that might fit, but not only with us as a country, but within the church and how God's kingdom functions. Do you know that Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests? And do you know the church is called to be a kingdom of priests? So we have a king and we're priests and we can go directly to our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have access directly to the throne room of God through what Jesus Christ did for us. So today, we're going to continue the series through Deuteronomy called Preparation for the Promised Land. And I've been choosing key words that appear in Deuteronomy. Remember, the first one was believe, then remember. And then last week, I spoke about destroy, destroying the idols in our life. This week, we're going to talk about the word rule. We're going to find out that word doesn't appear but one time in Deuteronomy, but the concept is throughout the Bible, right? Now, so if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, we find that God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them what? Rule over what? God's creation. And then two verses later, God blessed them. And God said to them, who's them at this point? 
Adam and Eve, right? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and what? Subdue it. The Hebrew word for subdue is kabash. And to rule over. So we see here not only ruling, but we see a subjugation of evil. Adam and Eve were supposed to subject evil to themselves. They were supposed to subject evil to God. What did they do instead of subject evil? They decided to serve. They decided to believe Satan rather than God. So at that point, sin entered the world, and that was called the fall of mankind. We currently live in a fallen world. We're only renewed and become new creations. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, when you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that makes us new in Christ. So what are we supposed to do as Christians and the people of God? We're supposed to rule over God's creation and subject evil to God and not submit to evil. We're supposed to resist evil. We do it backwards, remember? And James said, submit yourselves to God and resist evil. We submit to evil and resist God backwards. But we're supposed to rule. There is a kingdom. It's God's kingdom. Graham Goldsworthy says God's kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's how it functions. That's how it's supposed to function. Now, like I said, the word rule does not appear in Deuteronomy but one time. And it appears in chapter 15, verse 6. Moses speaks, For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised you, and you will lend to many nations, speaking to Israel, and you will not borrow You will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. But what happened? They broke God's commands. And God said, you will live long in the land if you carefully follow what I tell you to do. They did not follow what God said to do. The Mosaic covenant was a bilateral covenant in the sense that God would do this if they did this. They didn't do that. So they became ruled, they were ruled over by other kingdoms. But that's not how God wanted it to be. God has set up his kingdom, and he has set it up on earth as an example through Israel, and it's God's judicial system. It's how he wants nation, his nation, to function. So here we're going to look at the four branches of God's judicial system, okay? That's found in Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through chapter 18, verse 22. And the first branch is judge. That's the first branch mentioned, the branch of judge. And remember, all these branches are symbols of God, what he does in his authority. So God is judge, and he set up Israel with judges. There's a whole book called Judges, right? So Israel's judicial system was important. Ours in America, as I said, was emulated after this. We have what's called the Supreme Court. It's modeled, it's supposed to be after the judges in Israel. The judges in Israel were to judge fairly, without bias, according to God's command. Now that's the difference. A lot of people say we live in a Christian nation. I don't see that. If we lived in a Christian nation, 
we would subject ourselves to Christ. Israel was God's nation. We as a church are a spiritual nation. And one day Jesus will come back and reign over the land that he has promised Israel. And we will be a part of that with reigning with him for a thousand years, it says in the millennial period. The judges were not given authority to change the law. They were given only the authority to interpret the law. God's law was not to be changed by the judges. They were to interpret what law was already there. So Israel was under the authority of God. And as long as they functioned under his authority, Yahweh's authority, everything was cool. But sadly, Israel drifted and sank into demise and came into captivity. First, Babylon, and then they were allowed to come back to the land. But God had to teach them their lessons. The first branch of government mentioned is the justice system. And it says in Deuteronomy 16, 18, you, so he's talking to the people of Israel, shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with righteous or right judgment. Now that's the key. Raise your hand if you believe that God judges correctly. We don't, right? We fail. And a lot of Christians avoid judging. They pull out the old Matthew 7, 1 verse that says, Do not judge or you too will be judged. But what about context? We need to ask ourselves, what is the context of that statement? Turn to Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Jesus is speaking here. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. In verse 2, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure will be measured to you. So then he gives more information that's very important of why he said this. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye but you don't notice the big old plank hanging out of your own eye, okay? That's my own added words. But. <laughs> or how can you say to your brother, let me take that little tiny speck out of your eye, and behold, there's a big honking log. And then he says in verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye before you want to start judging your brother's speck. So that's the context. And a lot of times we go, oh, we should never judge. Well, that's not what Jesus says. In fact, in John chapter 7, he says, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge what? Correctly. Judge rightly, as the judges were supposed to do in God's behalf. We have been given the authority to judge rightly. How does one judge rightly? What do they judge against and upon? The Bible. This is the plumb line. First of all, we got to be open to the log that's hanging out of our own eye before we start telling other people what to do. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't judge and especially judge sin correctly. We can't be Christians and be part of God's nation and just go, oh, everything's okay. Everything's not okay. God has rules. If something that we're doing 
or others are doing in the church, and God has given authority in the church through pastors and elders. That's how it's dealt with. But it's dealt with love, but it's also dealt with truth. So we should judge. We should make judgments on things that are not right, according to the Bible. Judgment is a centerpiece of the gospel. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus Christ will come again to what? Judge the world. So Christ is judge. And what we're going to find in all these different branches of government, I want to point to Christ as his fulfillment of those things. But I also want you to see yourself in this story. But first, Christ is judge. What does Jesus say? It's amazing what he says. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So Jesus came first to save the world, right? But he's coming again to what? Judge the world. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. This is the judgment of the nations. Jesus is speaking of a time in the future. It's very important to understand what's going on, and I'll explain as we go through this. But starting in verse 31 of chapter 25 of Matthew, Jesus is speaking about his second coming. And he says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations, and the Greek word is ethnos, where we get the word ethnic, will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father. So Jesus is the king. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king, Jesus, will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine. That's the key. And remember, nations are being judged. Even in the least of them, you did it to me. Who are the brothers of mine? There's some who believe that it's Israel because it's speaking of a future time where all the nations will be judged. Jesus has come back. This is after the great tribulation. Israel has been restored. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul speaks of the restoration of all Israel, that they will be saved. In Revelation, we read about 144,000 Jews that get saved, 12,000 from each tribe. Some people believe the brothers of mine is Israel. So Jesus may be saying, when you blessed Israel, you blessed me. Remember, in the context of nations. Now, what did God say to Abraham? He said, your seed will become a great nation. He said, what? Those who bless you will be blessed, 
those who curse you will be cursed. So maybe Jesus is saying that's the fulfillment, the judgment time of those who blessed Israel as nations and those who cursed Israel as nations. That could be that. Or it could be that when you helped a believer in the church, you helped brothers of mine in the church. I tend to lean more towards the Israel concept there because he's speaking of his second coming. But the point is that Jesus will judge all people. Now, the righteous here are those who have placed their faith in Christ. So they get to enter into heaven. And he goes on there. He says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry. And he goes through the whole thing. You didn't help my brothers. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So Jesus will come back and he will judge nations. He will judge all people. Now, that's one aspect of judgment, which is judgment towards people who have rejected Christ. But do you know that the church will be judged and rewarded? Now, I'm going to read a verse in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we can't get confused. Those who are believers will not be judged for rejecting Christ because we've accepted Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, and Paul's writing this, for we must all, that includes all believers, appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That word, bema seat, have you heard of that, bema seat? That was where the awards were handed out for the Greek Olympics and the winners of the Olympic Games. The judge would sit raised up, stand raised up. As you're in a court, you know, there's a raised up section where the judge, and the judge would give out the awards to the winners. So Paul says, we're all going to appear before Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Basically, we will be judged according to how well we handled and took care of and managed God's resources. We have to understand, nothing we have is ours, not even our body. So everything that we have, God has loaned to us. And there will come a time where we stand before God and we won't be rejected by him. He loves us. But he's saying to us, those things that I gave you, I didn't give them for you to keep them to yourself. I didn't give them for you to waste. That includes financial resources, talent, gifts, abilities, all those things. He gave those to us to use for his glory by giving them away for his purpose. And so that's part of a judgment that we will receive. I wish it would read, for we must all appear before the reward or the awards section, you know, because that's basically what it is. But the word judgment is not in the negative context, but we will be judged according to how well we took care of God's resources. That's what that verse says. So Christ is judged, but guess what? You will judge with him. You will rule with him. Do you know this? A lot of believers don't get this. Why in the world didn't God just take us to heaven the moment we were saved? 
One reason, he wanted you to share Christ. He wanted you to share the gospel. Another reason, he's maturing and sanctifying you to become more like Christ. And one of the things he's doing, he's preparing you to rule with him in heaven. How do we know this? It says so in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 6.3, Paul says something incredible to the Corinthian church. He says, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? If you know anything about the Corinthian church, they were extremely gifted with spiritual gifts, but they were very immature. They were like treating their brothers and sisters in Christ as lesser than the people who had more money. They were taking advantage of the Lord's table. They were gossiping. They were divisive. And Paul writes to them, don't you know you're supposed to love one another? And he's basically saying, you can't even get along with each other. How in the world are you going to judge with Christ? Basically grow up. Turn to 1 Corinthians, which is later in the New Testament after Matthew. We're going to look at chapter 6. Basically, Paul is saying to this immature church, and I'm going to start actually with uh, verse 12 of chapter 5. He says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? So he's saying, I'm not supposed to judge outsiders. That's God's job. But I am supposed to judge those who are within the church. But those are outside. God judges. And remove the wicked man from among yourself. Remember, this is a man who was basically sexually immoral to a 10th degree. And he's basically saying he needs to go learn. Kick him out of the church. Let Satan get a hold of him for a while. And then he'll come back. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous? So why are you taking your believers to an unrighteous court, basically? And why are you suing each other in a pagan court, basically? He says, get it together. He goes, do you not know that you will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you can't even judge matters of this life, how are you going to judge with Christ? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of life, do you appoint them as judges who have no account to the church? See, he's basically saying the church is the place that should deal with these things. He says, I say this to your shame. And then verse 7, actually then it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? He's talking of the church, not with outsiders, with believers. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he goes on and talks about this. But the whole purpose of this is sanctification and becoming more like Christ so that one day we will rule with him. If we're not able to deal with problems in the church, how in the world are we going to deal with judging the world with Christ? This is why it's really important to be in the teaching of the word and to be with other believers. If God is sanctifying us and he wants us to become more like Christ, and one of those things is so that we'll be able to have the knowledge and the ability to judge with him in heaven, don't you think that's part of the sanctification process? Now, let me tell you this. A lot of people miss this. What does God use the most to sanctify us besides his word? Other people. And you know what type of person he uses the most? Different than me. Because I always say, you know, the 
ministry would be awesome if it wasn't for the people, you know, or the church would be great if no people showed up. If you're married, you understand that you get married to a totally different person usually. What in the world? And then God's like, you're going, oh, that's heavenly sandpaper. You know, this heavenly speed bump that God's putting in my life to mold and sanctify me. And then you come to church and there's a million of those people. And you're like, how in the world? What is God doing? Well, he's using those people to make you more like Christ. That's the truth. And you will judge with Christ. The next branch is the branch of king, which is the executive branch. So we have the judicial. Now we have the executive. Now, this is interesting. Out of all the branches in Israel of government, the executive branch had the most limitations. The king. First, the judges were chosen by the people. The king was chosen by God. In Deuteronomy 17, it says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I want to set a king over me, because that's what Israel did. They rejected God as their king. They wanted their own king. Like all the nations around you, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. The second limitation is he couldn't be a foreigner. He had to be of Israel. The third limitation is interesting. He could not have many horses or possessions. And the fourth one is more interesting. He could not have many wives. Now, why are these limitations there? Do you remember Solomon? Solomon did all those things, right? He wasn't a foreigner, but he had many horses, possessions, many wives. Is that why God gave these limitations? I don't think so. The answer is found in what the king can do. So let's go back to Deuteronomy and let's look at chapter 17 where we were, starting in verse 18. So God's now telling what the king should be doing. Okay, I just gave you what the king shouldn't do. Now verse 18. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. Here's what the king needs to do. The king will write for himself a copy of this law and a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. That's interesting because what's the king supposed to do? He's supposed to observe and read the law every day and write it down. Why? So he get in his heart. The king of Israel basically defines the citizenship of Israel because the king is supposed to do exactly what the people are supposed to do. So if that applies to us, God's saying we should be observing and meditating reading, writing the law, which is the word of God, so that we can become more like him. Basically what's happening is God saying that the kingship, the king, also exemplifies a kinship, family, relationship with the people. So his limitations would reveal that kingship, kinship relationship. Basically, the king was the representative of the people before God. 
So God said, you need to do what I'm telling the people to do. Now, what happened? The kings blew it big time. If you read 1 Kings, 2 Kings, you'll notice they didn't do that, and they fell into idolatry, which affected the whole nation. Now, God is king. Christ is king. Christ is king. Did you know this? He is Lord of lords and king of kings, and every knee shall bow before him. What am I? You are his vicegerent. That's a word, viceroy or so. What it means, a person exercising delegated power on behalf of a sovereign ruler. You are to act on behalf of the king. That's why Jesus said, he came to them and said, all authority has been given to me in heaven, so go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus said at the end, before he ascended, he says, peace be with you to the disciples. As the Father sent me, I send you. I give you authority. And then he breathed on them. And what did they receive? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the deposit and the seal and the guarantee of our future consummation of our redemption. We have been redeemed. One day our bodies will be redeemed. We are a new creation in Christ because we have the Holy Spirit. And one day we will see God face to face. Our bodies will be new and glorified in Him. So we are representatives of Christ. We have authority. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. The Word of God directs us, and we should be acting on His behalf to the world. The third branch of government is the priest. Now, the priests had most authority. They represented and worked on behalf of the people, similar to what we would call our legislative branch. The representatives of the people, or they're supposed to be the representatives of the people. The role of the king was diminished and subordinate to the priests. In Deuteronomy 17, 18, he says, When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, the king, he shall write for himself in a book of a copy of this law approved by the priests. In writing the law, the law would be written on the king's heart. In Psalm 119, 11, read this with me. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. So why is it important to have the word in our heart? So that we don't stray from the Lord. That's why it's important to write notes, take notes, study the Bible, be under the teaching of the Bible so that you can have it in your heart. Who was the first Israelite priest? Aaron, right? And he was a Levite. Moses was his brother, so he was a Levite. The priest worked in the tabernacle and the temple. They didn't get land as the other tribes because the Lord was their inheritance. They didn't get paid, so to speak. How were they paid? From the tithes of the people. The people would bring their tithes. Those who worked in the temple would be taken care of by the people that way. In Deuteronomy 18.2, it says, They shall not have... No inheritance among their fellow Israelites. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. And that's a promise from Numbers 18, when the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land nor any portion among them. I am your portion and inheritance among the sons of Israel. So basically, God should be enough. The greatest calling 
the best blessing during this time was to be called to serve God as a priest. Do you know that we're all called to serve God as a priest? It's called the priesthood of all believers. It means that we don't have to go to a human being to get to God. We get to God through a high priest, Jesus Christ. Christ is priest. So we see here that Christ is judge, king, and priest. And in a minute, we'll see that he's a prophet. It says in Hebrews 4.14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Was Jesus Christ from the tribe of Levi, though? Judah. So how is, because God says only the tribe of Levi can be priests. How's that happen? Well, that's why it's important to look at the book of Hebrews. Because in Hebrews, the New Testament writer helps us understand how Jesus can be a priest. It says, for it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You ever heard of Melchizedek? Where does he appear? In Genesis chapter 14, Abraham has just won the war against some other kings. And this guy Melchizedek shows up. Do you remember what nation he was king of? Salem, which by the way, Jerusalem is the same place. He was the king of Salem. He was the high priest of the Most High God. And Abraham gave a tenth of everything he had to the king and priest. And Melchizedek had no beginning and no end. So who is he a type of? And it's the same with us. Jesus is the king of Jerusalem and the world. He's our high priest of the Most High God. We give a tenth to him, and he gives it and allots it to the people in the church that are working in the temple. And Jesus had no beginning and no end. That's how Jesus was a priest. And verse 21 of Hebrews says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, talking of Jesus, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, which is a direct quote, from the Messianic Psalm 110. Where's Jesus currently? Seated at the right hand of the Father. What is he doing? He is our high priest. He is king. He's judge. He's all those things. But he's functioning as our high priest. Now, is Jesus alive? Did earthly priests live forever? No. So that's why this verse is incredibly important in Hebrews 7.25. Read it with me. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If Christ was dead, we would not live, and we could not be saved. Christ is alive, therefore we are alive. You are a priest unto God. Peter writes, you as living stones are being built up a spiritual house for the holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing. In 1 Peter 2.9, it says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Why? That you may declare the praises of God who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So why are we a priest? Because we are to serve and worship God. Offer ourselves as a sacrifice. Romans 12.1, read it with me. 
Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship, as the earthly priests would serve and sacrifice animals to the Lord. And Jesus Christ was sacrificed once and for all. We now offer ourselves as a sacrifice. Now, what's the problem with living sacrifices? We tend to crawl off the altar, right? So that's why every day, We should be saying, Lord, here I am. What do you want me to do for you today? I work for you. I serve you. You are my inheritance. And nothing I have is mine. Use me for your glory. That should be our daily prayer and exercise. And the last branch of government is the prophet who spoke on behalf of God. The priest served on behalf of God. The prophet spoke on behalf of God. Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. So Moses is saying, there will be a greater prophet than me and you need to listen to him. Did God the Father ever say, listen to him? You remember when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration? Peter and uh, John are up there and they're like, Peter's like, hey, this is great. Let's build tabernacles and stay here forever. And God speaks and says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him, right? So he's the prophet that Moses spoke about. Luke 24, 27, Jesus says something incredible on the road to Emmaus. He says, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to these two disciples everything concerning himself in all the scriptures, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, everything written about him, about Jesus is in the Bible beginning with the law. That's amazing. Christ is prophet. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Jesus Christ is the absolute power and pure word of God. Now, I don't have time to get into the false prophets. We need to stay away from false prophets, false teachers, These are people who don't preach and teach the word of God. And then the last thing is since Christ is prophet, and so we are his voice. We speak on his behalf. Do you know this? Jesus said, preach the gospel to all creation. How do I speak what God wants me to speak? I speak the word. I share my testimony. There's a song that I wrote a long time ago, probably one of the first songs I ever wrote, and it's a song called Make Me Your Voice. It was a prayer, and if you hear every week, and I start off my sermon with the prayer, Lord, make me your voice for your glory. That's been my prayer since I became a believer. So I want to sing just a little of it to wrap this up, because I want us to see how we are his voice. And people need to hear the truth. If there's ever a time to speak the truth, it's now. Lord, use my hands, use my feet, use my life. Lord, make me your voice, faithful. 
Search my heart, search my soul. I am yours, Lord. Make me your voice, forever praising your name. Would you stand and sing that with me? Lord, use my hands. Lord, use my hands, use my feet, use my life, Lord, make me your voice, faithful and true. Search my heart, search my soul, I am yours, Lord, make me your voice, forever praising your name. Hey, if it's, if it's in your heart to... Uh to accept this prayer that I'm going to pray about being used by God. You want to be used by God? You, you all are. But what if God has something incredible that's beyond uh, what you could even ask or imagine? Isn't that what you want to do? I mean, if he's the king of the, of the kingdom, he's going to, like, use you that you never... If you would just surrender to him, uh, he's got a plan that's way better than your plan. So uh, if it's you, hold out your hands like this and say, Lord. Say, if this you say it out loud, Lord, use me for your glory, for your purpose, for your kingdom to make a difference in this world so that Jesus Christ can be lifted up and glorified. Amen. Pastor David Bartowell's message reminds us that God speaks to us with hope and reason so that we can be His voice in this world. Please join us again for Make Me Your Voice, a ministry of the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. We would love to have you join us for a Sunday service. For more information or to find our location, please visit thegatecbc.com. Make me your voice.